Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. which those of you who spend your summers wearing Union Jack shorts at the beach in Falaraki will know is Greek for Achtung, Achtung. Yes, Greek. Um, well, well, that was my Greek accent. Well, welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk, which may or may not be the podcast, your podcast of choice amongst British sun-seeking holidaymakers this summer. Lots to get through in today's show. Uh, lots of questions today, I think, rather than a solid subject. So without further ado, my podcast pal, James Holland, will get us started. Yeah, well, I'm, actually, I've got a cracker here to start us off with from Mark Jaffray, who got in touch on Twitter to ask, 
If you had been serving in World War II, which regiment, squadron or ship would you, if possible, have served in on and why? Um, well, your thing is... Uh, uh, I mean, the whole point is to kind of think, thank God we didn't have to do that. Well, exactly. First things first, thank God I've never had to do any of these things. I mean, I was at, I was at Hendon the other day and, and looking at the bombers and you think, nah, that's shit. I wouldn't want to be in a bomber. Because right? no. at night you get shot down. Uh, killed by the flak, Schrager music, something like that would happen yeah, to you. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's at night. And it's, and it's at night, it's terrifying. Um, uh, daylight bomber, no thanks. Um, uh, fight a plane. Torpedo bomber across Torpedo the Mediterranean, bomber, yeah, no, exactly, thanks. no thanks. No um, thanks. I think that was worse of all. Yes, coastal command. Just really boring. U-boats, boring. Um, and, and dangerous. And dangerous, no thanks. Um, right, so that's the area. Infantry, forget I- that. Infantry, absolutely Loom. forget that. No way. <laughs> our, um, our tank crew, I don't want to be boiled alive in a metal container. Um, no, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> or my head shot off every time I try and look out of the thing. No. Um, uh, artillery, well, counter-battery fire, I wouldn't much want to experience no, that. And you're deaf and it's dangerous. RESC, yeah, okay. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've talked a lot about the Allied logistic tail. I quite fancy being on the Mulberry unloading... Uh, cartons of pajamas see i'd like to think that I, of course i'd be a fighter pilot and if i was going to be a fighter pilot then i'd want to have joined 609 squadron which was my local squadron to home in wiltshire um uh, they were at middle wallet which is actually maybe that's in hampshire actually but anyway it doesn't really matter but it's yeah. close to salisbury um and they flew spitfires and they were the first to get to 100 um in the in the battle and they later flew rocket firing typhoons which i think are really cool and i like those yeah um but of course, I wouldn't want to be a fighter pilot because it, um, it's really dangerous and, it's just dangerous. and scary. So I've I've thought, I've often thought about this, and I think the way you can do it, where you feel you've really done your bit, but actually the chances of getting through unscathed are kind of better than most, is probably being on a destroyer. Right. I think that'd be quite good. So patrolling the Atlantic. Yeah, a bit of that, and then you know, I mean, it is dangerous. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, lots of destroyers got sunk in the Second World War, and you know, and if you get sunk, it's not great because you know, chances are you drown. That's not brilliant. <laughs> Mum and Dad never know where you are. You sort of, sort yeah. of turn into fish bait. You know, so all that kind of stuff isn't good. But I think it would be quite exciting for a lot of the time. And I mean, how amazing would it have been to kind of think, you know, you're part of the invasion force at D-Day on a mm. on a destroyer, kind of off mm. Gold Beach or something. That'd be great. Mm. So in other words, uh, put this question, Mark Jeffrey, to two people who aren't cowards. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, right. So we have some questions. Now, um, this, one is a, this one is a juicy one, I think. Um, and we've talked a lot about Normandy, but this is one of the really interesting stories from Normandy. This is Bruce Shepard whose opening gambit is to say that he loves the podcast. Um, oh, so we like Bruce. Yeah, we like I love you too, Bruce. Um, I read an article in the provincial newspaper yesterday about the murder of 18 soldiers of the North Nova Scotia Highlanders by a panzer unit on June 7th, 1944, D plus one. Would love to hear your thoughts on this event. Mm, well, it's a, D plus one is one of the most important and little known episodes of the entire Normandy campaign because what happens is the Canadian 8th Brigade are pushing inland. And they get to a little village called Buron, and they're advancing to another one called Oti. And Oti is only about a mile to the south of Buron. And both villages are just north of Carpiquet, which is the, where the airfield is, yeah. outside Caen, just to the western side of Caen. And this is all part of the kind of allies trying to take the city of Caen. They don't manage it on D-Day, so they're trying to sort of push on. Up against them, just coming to the front, are the 12th Hitler Jugend Division, um, SS, Waffen SS Panzer Division. 
Um, they're about 20,000 strong. They're bristling with weaponry, you know, compared to those static divisions on the coast. These guys are kind of, when you're thinking of of um, highly motivated, um, fanatical Germans with really amazing kit, this is who you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, and the first regiment to get there is the 25th Panzer Regiment, which is commanded by Kurt Mayer, who's known as Panzer Mayer, who is a fanatical National Socialist. He's been there, done it. He's brilliant soldier, very experienced, knows absolutely what he's about. The 12th Hitler, um, uh, Hitler Jugend Division are not necessarily amazingly well-trained because they're only formed the previous previous autumn and they're not they're reasonably well-trained, mm. but they are incredibly well-disciplined and they are incredibly well-motivated, which is frankly pretty good and they've got this amazing kit because they've had a big reorganized haven't they and they yes. beefed up the um yes. ss panda panzer uh, yeah so they're all outfits. much they're much bigger so the the yeah. inf- the static inf- the crap infantry divisions have been reduced in size and stature yeah whereas the panzer divisions the creme de la creme have been massively beefed up so they've got everything they need they've got yeah. 88s they've got half tracks they've got you know groovy bmw motorcycles with yeah. sidecars they've got tigers they haven't got tigers actually they've got panthers and yeah. all the rest of it and um and high velocity anti-tank guns and also machine guns and and square-jawed young germans wanting yeah. to kill lots of allied troops and their 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 orders for that day is drive the allies back into the sea so that is what they're intending to do and they come up against uh one battalion and then two battalions uh, first of the Nova Scotias, the first battalion they come up against, which again you're talking about after kind of day one, probably about 750 men, something like that, and a handful of Sherman tanks from the Sherbrooke Fusiliers, and they managed to push the Canadians back to uh, Buron, and they get no further. Um, the Canadians are attacking without the kind of fire support that they would experience and expect later on in the campaign yeah. because the naval guys haven't quite got themselves together. The artillery support for that for that unit um, is busy um, sorting out a sort of radar base near Douvres, so they're they're already busy. So it literally is a handful of yeah. infantry and a handful of tanks that the SS cannot move more than push back more than about a mile. Right. In Oti is where they, the village of Oti is where the Canadians come up against the um, the, the 25th um, Panzer Regiment of the 12th SS Division. And it is a really, really tough, brutal fight. And lots of wounded are left in Oti. And then the, the Germans turn up with their panther tanks and deliberately run them over. French civilians are having to scrape off bits of dead Canadian with shovels later on in the day. A whole load over are captured and taken to the Abbey Arden, which is um, a sort of lovely old abbey, um, which is Kurt Mayer's headquarters, and there they are summarily executed. And it's not eighty; I think it's something like thirty-seven or something like that. It's a mm. bit more than that. It's double what what um, he says in his um, in his in his tweet. And three things can be learned from this, or, or, or suggested from this. The first thing is the Canadians are a damn sight better than we give them credit for. Yeah, which is probably true. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that the twelfth. Hitler Jugend Division are nothing like as good as we give them credit for, which probably isn't true. And the third thing is that anyone going on the attack in Normandy is going to have a really, really tough time because it's bloody difficult, which is most definitely true. Yeah. The second thing about it is that what it does is it sets a bar. It sets a bar for a kind of level of brutality and violence that is absolutely categorised throughout the entire Normandy campaign. Uh, And unfortunately, it's a massive home goal from the point of view of the 
um, the Hitler Jugend because this stuff spreads like wildfire. And where before you might look on them kindly and take them as prisoner, now uh, um, Canadians, Brits, Americans are going to be much, much but the, more willing because to, of course, to trigger themselves. Because, of course, the reason you take the enemy prisoner is so that if you're in their situation, they take you prisoner. Yeah. If you kill the enemy when he's surrendering, he'll kill you when you're surrendering. Yeah. That's the, that's, the, that's the tacit, I mean, or actually explicit, actually, agreement that... that, that yeah. That that is in place during the war. It's not on the Eastern Front. Yeah. In the between the between basically Western competences, if you regard the Germans as Western in that context, that you that what you do is you don't murder the you don't murder the people surrounding. You don't kill the people surrounding so that they don't do it to you. Yeah. And the 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 SS break that convention on de, on day two of the Normandy battle, and and the Canadians from then on are basically especially the canadians have no qualms in about about no. killing surrendering german soldiers well when when you when you've witnessed people being crushed to death deliberately by pamphlet yeah. tracks it kind of tends to stick in your mind a bit yeah and and you know you're not feeling that forgiving and you're not sort of going mm, but he might not be a fanatical nazi yeah. so he's probably actually a really good bloke so yeah I'll let him off you just yeah. don't think that he's a nazi scum i'm gonna shoot him yeah yeah and of course that's what happens you know violence begets violence it's what happens on the eastern front it's what happens you know and this is where so, so th- th- this is a kind of sort of paradox of it because because the Waffen SS troops have incredible discipline and yet they have no discipline. Yeah, they're disciplined in so much as run across that field and and commit suicide, yavol, and off they go. Um, control yourself when you catch us some prisoners. No, I won't. I'm just going to kill everyone. Yeah, and of course it comes from the officers down. And one of the problems with the Waffen SS is they start off as National Socialist thugs, street fighters. Those are that's that's the top. And your your culture within your division always comes from the top. And if the top boys in the division have been Nazi street fighters before yeah. the war, that is what the division will be like. Because Panzer Mayer um, uh, turns up in the Ardennes battle as well, doesn't he? Doing behaving. Some, some, no, he gets captured he? in early September. He gets captured in early September. And he's then put in Trent Park. And it's quite interesting because he's one of those people that they capture oh, they them, bug, but they bug, bug. them. So and who's he talks it, about who is it? Who's the? Who's it's Jock and Piper. That's right. Yeah, I was getting. Yeah, and they're kind of on a sort of. You know, I always get my sort of super Nazi villains muddled up. Yeah, they're both sort of incredibly good looking and square jawed, yeah, and particularly yeah. Jock and Piper. But yeah, so Myers in that in that uh, there's that extraordinary thing where they they basically leave them. They put them all in the house together, don't they? The British yeah, put in them Trent all in the house together, yeah, and, yeah. And, and bug them, yeah, and listen to them. They've all. been doing it since 1940 in the Battle yeah, of Britain. Yeah. Actually, they get all the officers there, and they yeah, and they just listen to them, and you can you can read the transcripts of these, and they're yeah. absolutely fascinating. And he just goes absolutely off on one about why national socialism is brilliant and why the Nazis are great and why he absolutely still loves them and you know and what he wants after the war is is to return to national socialism in Germany, and that's the only way forward. And it's absolutely amazing because you just cannot believe that someone can really swallow this shit but of yeah. course as we know from recent times people do people do yeah yeah i it's the, the thing is that i mean again the, uh and we we have touched on this before this is d plus one you know the, the, and and with the d-day commemorations on the day of the d-day commemorations i tweeted you know let's please try and bear in mind this is the start of 11 yes. months of 11 weeks, yeah. Well, well no, but, but, but the, 11 to the end of the of war. Whole, yeah, 11 yeah. months of hard campaigning totally. to the end of to the defeat of Nazi Germany. Yeah. It's not it's it's not just that one day. And in fact, D-Day sort of it, it isn't an end, of course, isn't an end in itself. Got to remember that. And D plus one, this is, what, this is what's going on. This bitter, 
bitter fighting because the because also the, the the Germans know perfectly well that this is this is the end game beginning it's the beginning of the end game it's the beginning of 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 the allies coming to germany yeah. and and they know that they they that's why that's the other reason they're fighting so fanatically is because it's their backs to the wall moment is be- yes this is, is the post this it? is the post goebbels sports palace yeah. speech of february war, 1943 yeah. which is just after the fall of of stalingrad and the whole tenor of Nazi propaganda changes. This is no longer about, you know, we're going to conquer the world, the Vazir Reich. Now it is, everybody needs to fight. There has to be total war, yeah, yeah. because otherwise we're going to, we're facing Armageddon. Yeah. And of course, that puts the shit up absolutely everybody, and why wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's perfectly aware of what's been going on in the Eastern Front, and that is coming our way, plus yet more bombers coming over and flattening German cities. Mm. And so, you know, this has been this sort of, you know, it's really hard to understand why, if you know you're... I mean, if you think about it in November 1918, the Germans sign an armistice because they're not going to win and they've run out of cash. You know, well, if you apply that to the Second World War, then, you know, Hitler should have been throwing in the towel in November 1941. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't. And, and the big question is, why do they keep on fighting? And why, and, you know, and if the Allies have all this huge material advantage, then why does it take them so long? Well, I argue it doesn't take them very long at all. You know, it's really pretty quick. You know, when you're up against a fanatical enemy who doesn't want to surrender, who's got some half-decent kit, that makes them a phenomenally yeah. tough nut to crack. When you are trying to be mindful of the, the lives of your men and, and collateral damage around you, I mean, it's incredibly difficult. Um, but, but what is so interesting about that engagement around OT and the, with the Canadians is it really shows that going on the offensive in Normandy is unbelievably difficult. Yeah. It really is hard to make the big breakthrough. And is it any wonder it takes until the third week of July to have that, you know, before the dam actually bursts? And everyone gives the Allies such a hard time for it. And yet it's always the people who are quick to criticise the Allied war effort and being sluggish and slow who always um, put the German fighting man up on some kind of pedestal at the same time. And I don't think they can have it both ways. You can't sort of look at the actions of the 12th SS division on the 7th of June and say, yeah, but they're amazing, but then criticise the Allies on the next turn because they're suffering just as badly on the attack. Well, nothing like as badly as the the SS do. Yeah, It's an interesting one. And yet it sets this bar for this sort of incredible violence that's going to be, um, which is going to kind of um, be a feature of the Normandy campaign and until the very end of the war, in fact. Okay, now Paul from Ormskirk has Which is our very own Tony's father. Ormskirk, I I always have to remind myself, it's Merseyside, isn't it? Lancashire, oh well, it sounds Scottish. It's the same way Pontefract. I was thinking, well, that's in Wales, and then I realised I'm near York. Anyway, the... Um, <laughs> or Balarickey, which sounds exactly, like it would be in Wales, exactly, but actually it's in Essex. Yeah, There's exactly, an irony for exactly, Gavin yeah. Okay, um, right. Uh, the Italian military. Paul asks, he doesn't... Um, given that his son produces his podcast, he doesn't start off with the love of the podcast, so that's... Blood is thinner, yeah, have a word, Tony. Blood is thinner than water on this occasion. The Italian military during World War II is widely regarded as something of a joke, lacking in skill and valour. For instance, the classic Italian tank fitted with one forward gear and three reverse. Is this wholly unmerited? Are there examples of Italian brigades who fought with distinction or of Italian high command noted for their strategy and tactics in the field of battle? Well, I would say largely it's wholly merited. Yeah. Um, there are some exceptions. There are some really good units. You know, like, like the Folgori, there's a Decima Mass, who were the kind of um, sort of marine commandos, effectively, of the, of the yeah. Italian forces under um, Borghese. You know, that is pretty from, good. But this comes from 1940. But from the top is really yeah. bad. But this really comes from the, 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 the massive victories in, in 1941, doesn't it? When the, when the British absolutely tonk the Italians yes. and capture hundreds of thousands of people and all their kit. 
sort of straight off and trick them. Yeah, 133,000 men out of two armies in, in, yeah, Operation Compass. And it must come from that. It's Compass, isn't it? Well, it it is, except except it's, it's kind of worse than that. I mean... You know, Germany is resource poor in its position in the sort of heart of Europe. Italy is even worse. It just doesn't have enough of anything. Yeah. And the only reason Mussolini declares war is because he has his, you know, like Hitler, he doesn't have that kind of great geopolitical understanding that people like Roosevelt and and, and Churchill have. And he completely underestimates. He just thinks the British are finished, and so he takes a punt. You know, the whole point is to kind of keep out of the war and create his own southern empire in the, around the Mediterranean and, and North and East Africa. That's the plan, and just not get involved with the Nazis' yeah. war. Uh, and Hitler's happy with that because he doesn't want to worry about his southern flank. So it seems like a really good deal, you know. And, and there's a, there's a kind of part of the Pact of Steel is that we don't interfere in each other's affairs effectively. Yeah, you know, we consult occasionally and make sure we're sort of singing from the same hymn sheet, but. One of the problems is they're just they don't have the infrastructure to support it. They don't have the military support. They're just not modern enough. You know, a lot of their artillery is First World War era. Yeah. It's pretty rubbish. Um, their tanks are rubbish. They have really small caliber rifles, which are really un- ineffective. And so they start beefing it up, and that turns into a sort of quartermaster's nightmare because they've got too many different types of rifles and too many different types of bullets, and always the wrong bullets are ending up at the right bit. The whole method of government is the general secretariat. And they always knock off at two o'clock in the afternoon. And then in July, 19, beginning of July 1940, they go, look, now we're all at war. Don't you think it'd be a good idea? Maybe we ought to work a little bit harder. And they go, oh, I suppose so. What about my, but what about my kind of, you know, my siesta and seeing my mistress? They go, well, come on, you know, we're in war now. And they go, okay, well, okay, we'll knock off at four then. At the end of July, and I kid you not, they go, should we just go back to two o'clock? And everyone goes, yeah. <laughs> And they do. It's unbelievable. You know, they send kind of, you know, 18,000 new boots to, to their, their beleaguered men in Greece and they're all right-footed. I mean, it's just, it's just a catalogue oh, of... brilliant. Greece. You know, they have the, the most modern bit of the armed forces is the Navy, but they don't have any radar for it. Yeah. And they don't have any battleships. So they've got really good new destroyers and so on. And they've got some really good submarines, but they just haven't got the kit to coordinate it. Mm. The Air Force is an absolute joke. The Army is, is just full of officers which are kind of been reservists for the last 20 years. They're too old. They're all silver tops. They're kind of, you know, they're not up to speed at all. There's just too much creaking leather webbing. There's too many kind of cockerel feathers coming out of their hats. They look the part, but they're, they're just absolutely shit. So there you go, Paul. I mean, the thing is, Italians did fight alongside Rommel. The, the, he, yeah, he, and there's some he, good units. Some good units fighting alongside the... The Giovanni uh, Fascisti, yeah, exactly. the young fascist and, division, and, pretty well, good. And politically motivated, again, yeah, of course. we talked about motivation before with the um, uh, Panzer SS. And they're, they're, they're defeated at Alamein. And, I mean, the the British do the same thing that the Russians do, where what you do, you don't... You, you, you concentrate on the... Germans allies because you know they're not as good yeah so you can punch holes in the lines and, and crumble the yeah d- uh, degrade the German smash position. the Italians and oh, the, smash the uh, Italians and the, and the Romanians, and the Romanians at, 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 you know at Stalingrad and all that sort of thing that you, you you're better off better off uh, fighting the people who are worse at fighting so the Italians cop it in all of those situations there's, I mean it, it's there, there's some fantastic diary archives in um, in Italy there's one um, about 40 miles south of Bologna um, in Emilia Romana, there's another one up at Trento, up in the in the in the Dolomites. These these great diaries, and it is really really interesting when you look at read these diaries because they're all I mean they're all of a type, and they all just go, 
this is absolute hell. This is misery. I want my mum. I can't bear it. The RAF are attacking us again. I went to this barracks. I've started my training. It is absolutely awful. Get me out of this hell. I freaking hate it. I want to go home to spaghetti. I mean, it is literally all like that. And, and they're so melodramatic. And what is absolutely... And of course... They seem to sort of conform to the cliché. But there's a bigger thing going on, on here, which is that the Italians never, ever have the will to fight. They're just not interested in being in this war. This is not how it was sold and, to and them. Also, and we're talking about morale earlier yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, the, the morale is just terrible. Uh, uh, and also because fascism, Italian fascism, is a different texture to national socialism. Totally, in, in terms of, totally, totally in, ter- different. in terms of, like, it, its ideological objectives... It's, Completely, um, it's you, it's language, it's yes. uh, it's schematic, as it were. Yes, it, and it's and it just isn't as repressive as Nazism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Italians, of course, I mean, they, they don't. Really, and it's not racial. Either. Well, yes, yeah, not that. Yeah, I mean, you, I don't know. We're descending into um, possible cliche here, but you go to Italy, you don't get the feeling that anyone does what the government tells them anyway. Right, and this is, goes back to my point we were talking earlier about the king. in Germany, they're just told. Yeah, and in the last one, we were talking about Victor Emmanuel, the yeah. king. You know, I mean, there is a king the whole time. It is the Royal Army. It is the Royal Air Force. Yeah. It is the Royal Navy. Yeah. Okay, well, time for a short break. If you are listening to this podcast while lying on the beach in Mykonos or Halkidiki, you've just got time to splash on some more Factor 50 before we're back with battle plans and blazing cannon. Kalos Orisis Piso, or welcome back to our Greek friends. I do. I'm glad I haven't got to go to Greece soon, just in case they've heard this. Um, now you're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Actually, James, just before we continue, a word about balance. Um, I'm concerned that we're failing our fans in the former Axis powers. Data just in suggests that 0.6% of our listeners reside in Germany, and only 0.19% in Italy. I mean, maybe it's the, maybe we're not going to help with what you've just said about Italian well no I have been a bit rude about, about the Italians but, but actually while we're on the break I've, I've, I was thinking about this actually I'm going to qualify that because yeah. because I don't think there's any question about you can't doubt the courage of the Italians it's just that they don't want to fight and why would you I mean because it was an absolute disaster and yeah. they just didn't have the they just didn't have the will to well, fight well they're fighting in Germany's war as well they're the, fighting in Germany's war as well in the end but there's a couple of moments there's, there's a lovely moment I remember from, from Dennis Barnum's um, diary uh, which he then converted to a book. He was a fighter pilot, a Spitfire pilot in Malta in the summer of 1942. Yeah. And he's in this dogfight. He's absolutely exhausted. It's been incredibly draining. You can imagine what it was like flying yeah. over that island there. I mean, absolutely brutal. Uh, and he's run out of ammo. And he's got this Italian in a Mackie 202. It's a very cool aircraft. Uh, on his tail. He cannot shake him off. And, he, you know, Dennis is quite an experienced pilot. He knows what he's about. And he's doing every move very can to get, shake this guy off. And he just cannot, cannot get rid of him. And eventually, Dennis sort of gives up. He just thinks, okay, Give me the coup de grace, just do it. And the Italian pulls alongside him, waggles his wings, goes and flies off. It's absolutely brilliant. Then the other thing is I did, I've done a lot of work on the Italian partisans. And, you know, you have to be unbelievably brave to be in a partisan. Yeah. Because that is brutal. Really is tough. And, you know, some incredibly tough fighting going on in, in, in the sort of, you know, behind the, behind the front line in Italy throughout 1944 and into 1945. Really, really tough. And, you know, they're fighting because they believe, because yeah. the, the, 
the alternative is to go and join the SS police battalions or join one of Mussolini's divisions or become slave labour in Germany. And they don't yeah. want to do that. You know, they feel absolutely, you know, so it's just in the early war, there isn't that will and there is this sort of total ineptitude at the higher command level. But individual Italians, not a bit of it, you know, they can fight as well as anyone. There we go. Well, so come and listen to our podcast, guys. Yes, please, Italian. Ragazzi. Our Italian friends. Right, now Matt is unarmoured, asked us, when everything is taken into account and you could have only one, 17-pounder or 88? Now, uh, to the uninitiated, um, uh, the 17-pounder is the heavy British anti-tank gun, or the heaviest that we get to during the Second World War, and the 88 is the Flugabwehrkanone Flak gun that's converted wow. into a that sort of mutates into an anti tank weapon, yes. a tank weapon. This is a real question for the geeks. I love it um, because an eighty eight could be um, a pack forty three, which is a is a proper specific anti tank gun. Yeah. I low profile got the kind of shield, the two forks, and all the rest of it. Yeah. What most sort of you know anti tank gun pieces look like. The whole point about the but when you talk about when the Allies talk about eighty eight, what they're actually talking about is an anti tank weapon. Yeah. And it's just a kind of sort of cure all name for anything that's an anti tank gun. But since we are talking specifically eighty eights and you're talking about the dual purpose anti aircraft yeah. anti tank gun. Yeah. The 88 has a velocity of around 2,900 feet per second, whereas the... What's 70... that in miles per hour? <sighs> feet per second, I was going, oh, well, yeah. That's got, that's got to be Mac 2, isn't it? Mac or something? 2, something like that. Really fast. Yeah, really fast. <laughs> whereas the 17-pounder can fire at about 3,000 feet per second, so a little, it's got, just got the edge right? a little bit. Um, but, of course, in August comes the armour-piercing discarding sabot, yep. which you can put into a 17-pounder, and you can put that into a 17-pounder as an anti-tank gun or a Firefly Sherman, which is a Sherman tank equipped with the 17-pounder. And then it can do about 4,000 feet per second, which is absolutely off the radar. Less accurate, though, the sabot round, isn't it? Well, yes, but, but yeah, after about kind of 800 metres. But yeah. 800 metres usually, you know, vast majority of, of, of yeah. engagements in northwest Europe are under that. Um, and the other thing is, is you know, the 17-pounder is incredibly manoeuvrable, whereas the dual-purpose gun isn't at all. It's mm. a massive great big four-ton. Where people may have heard of the 88 is the very famous Hans von Luck story, Disputed Hans von Luck story, of course. Yeah, I came down in favour of it actually about, being, being correct. About anti-aircraft guns and him yeah. saying, point them at the tanks, fellas. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, the, the dual-purpose aspect of the weapon is the thing that I think has been part of the, the, the legend of the, of the 88, isn't it? Is that yeah. the Germans had a, one gun that could do everything. Yeah. Um, uh, which, of course, means there's an awful lot of 88s in Germany because they're having to deal 15, with... 15,000 of them, in fact. Well, not 50,088, but 50,000 anti anti-aircraft guns yeah, in Germany. Dealing with dealing with the bomber offensive. Mm. So so, you know, when people talk about what did the bomber offensive do, well it, it meant sure that there were fifteen thousand anti-tank guns <laughs> yeah. pointing at the sky in Germany rather than at tanks in Normandy. Yeah, only hundred and thirty two heavy guns in Normandy. There we are. At only. the start of the on yeah. D Day. I mean there are descriptions of of the of the wheat being set on fire by the rounds going through the wheat because the because they're going so fast. That that there's super high velocity anti tank we- weapons yep. through the through the corn setting the corn on fire in, yeah. in August. It, certainly, August. you mentioned hands on look. I mean, it is interesting because it's disputed that there weren't any eighty eights on the Bugabus Ridge at Kanye, which is where he was, this little village of Kanye. And if you ever go there, the ridge isn't you know it's not it's not like. 
being in the Lake District or something. It's not that kind of ridge. It's quite it's quite low, really. But you do have this great. Oh, you vision. can see absolutely. You can see absolutely all everything. the way, all the way yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely all can. the way down. So to, it's, um, so to it's very Island. it's a very pronounced feature. But and everyone says, well, you know, there weren't actually any eighty eights there, but there were definitely eighty eights around Caen, and they would have been pulled back that day if they yeah. hadn't already been destroyed by the um, by Bombing. the bombers. Um, and, and there is no question that a tanks are being knocked out, and the most likely thing to knock them out is an anti anti tank gun. Yeah. And there's no, I see no reason why it shouldn't be an eighty eight. Well, actually, that ties us to this next question then. Ah, right, that I've got here, this one: Operations Epsilon Goodwood successes or failures. Deste, very critical, but what about you, Nick Brown? Now, yeah, well, Deste's Deste, a declinist, so, so I'm not so, interested so in Carlo, him. So Carlo Deste, American historian, guy who'd served in Vietnam, uh, wrote a decision in Normandy, a very, very controversial um, tome in the 80s that my dad has a really tatty copy of because I think it's been lobbed about the house in anger. Yes. Certainly by me. Uh, um, and by me as well. Uh, it, it, and he says, the British are crap. Yeah, Monty's awful. Monty's awful. The, the plan was dreadful. Plan it's was all dreadful. Monty's fault. Yeah, it's all t- They're slow. They spent far too much time drinking tea. Yeah, not getting on with it. Yeah. So in Germans fact, are brilliant. And, and, and let's be honest. And let's be honest. Hugely influential book. Yeah. Hugely influential. And set the bar for a whole school of thought, which actually began. The precursor of that was probably Corelli Barnett, I suppose, yeah. but a few others. That set off this this school, which you know I call the declinist view, yeah. which is that that Germans are brilliant, and had they not been led by a madman they'd have actually won the day um the americans were just sort of ill-disciplined but had lots of kit and the british were just hanging on the shirt tails the americans and i just absolutely can't bear every part of that i just so that's the background to this so operations epson and goodwood now epson well i think epson is a really good battle for the british i think i think it goes really really well because um there are three divisions down so the original concept for epson is the third week of june um and this is the first major concentrated offensive by the british forces in normandy around con to try and break the deadlock around con and smash and grind down the the german panzer divisions which are arriving at, at the front with kind of ever increasing speed and uh it's supposed to be a three-core attack. Now, if you consider that a core has sort of two or more divisions, they're three divisions short on build-up because of the Great Storm and because yep. of the general bad weather. Great Storm happens between 19th and 21st of June, and really, you know, nothing moves in that time. So they get behind, so they can only do a two-core um, a, a two attack. The first one is this sort of Operation Martlet, which is on the right-hand western flank up Fontenay-le-Pesnel towards trying to catch the Roray Ridge, um, and that begins on the 25th of June. And the second one, the main one, is Operation Epsom with one corps on the with eight corps under Dick O'Connor, the great victor against the Italians in 1940. Yeah. Uh, um, who's been a prisoner of the Italians but escaped, come back, and now a corps commander in Normandy. Um, uh, and that's launched on the 26th of June. And the interesting thing about Epsom is that they know through ultra decrypts that uh, von Schreppenberg, who is the commander of the Panzer Group, is planning a coordinated counterattack. And so there is an imperative to start chewing up these panzer divisions as they reach the front in penny packets rather than allow them to kind of form themselves into a concentrated hole. Yeah. 
So that is why Epsom is launched when it is. And there's a lot of things that go against Epsom, one of which is the bad weather. So it starts in sort of drizzle, ten tense cloud. Air power doesn't come into it at all because they can't see anything, so they're not there. Um, and it is the same old problem that the the um, Hitler Jugend division discover on the 7th of June that you just can't make much headway with just tanks and a bit of artillery and, 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 and infantry. And in actual fact, when you do drive across the land over which Epsom is fought, you think, you know, five and a half miles on the first day, pretty good around here. You know, I'll go for that. Mm. Uh, And they do get across the river that they need to get across, and they do get onto the high ground, and they do capture um, Hill 112. But at the end of the battle, what they do is they then decide to kind of pull back. They create a bridgehead over the river, but they do pull off Hill 112, which, of course, then costs them rivers of blood later on to recapture. However... Uh, and this has been routinely criticised and routinely criticised uh, Monty, but the decision is not Monty's. The decision is the decision of O'Connor, who is a kind of, you know, tactical flair kind of yep. dasher, um, and General Dempsey, who is the commander of Second Army. He's not Montgomery's decision. And the reason is because they've created a dangerous salient. Yes. And around them are no less than six panzer divisions. Yeah. And the, where they're attacking is at the base of the salient. Now, an ap- a salient being, for those uh, people not knowing, a, a sock that sticks a out. Sock, yes. A sock shaped sort of protuberance. Yes. So and if you've got a straight line, it's a little bit that's sort of anomaly that sticks yeah, out. Sticks out. So you're offering the enemy flanks. You're offering yes. them opportunities to attack you. Yes. And you're offering, uh, you're offering them, you know, the, the, a protuberance a to protuberance, lock off. Which is a much more to defend because you've got to defend the flanks yeah. as well as the front. And it is towards those flanks that the Germans are counterattacking furiously on the 30th of June when the decision is made to pull back. Now, they might have resisted it, but probably not. But is it worth the risk? Because if they'd done so, some of their leading armoured units would have been surrounded and completely annihilated. Yeah. And it is just not worth it. It yeah. just is not worth it at this stage of the campaign. You cannot have any reverses at this stage of the campaign. Yeah. So... I think it was completely the right decision. And we're also, and we're also, and that, and that's the situation there and then. But we, you, if you zoom out to the, the 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 Allied philosophy of how you do this, is if well, we'll we're not going to expend men if we can't avoid it, and even though we have abundance of material. We'll withdraw and we'll we'll tidy our lines and and we'll come back next week. Which I think is completely sensible. Well, well, I, I well, think it's which, the right decision. When you when you say it loud, loud like that, it sounds like the precisely the right thing to but do. But on top of that, <laughs> what what Epsom achieves, and it shouldn't be underestimated at all, is it ruins forever any chance that the Germans will ever do a coordinated a proper attack, which will prove decisive in the Normandy campaign. Yeah, it knocks them off balance. Th- that is get, it. That is they're, it. They're, they're, they're denied the opportunity to create yep. a set piece battle, and, and, and all those SS divisions are absolutely chewed up because they're doing that same thing they are in counter-attacking the british positions they are exposing themselves and by the 30th of june the weather improves so the allied air forces are able to come in yeah. offshore naval guns which are still within range yeah. absolutely hum down i mean the 12th hitler um Jugend division for example is absolutely decimated by this i mean they they are completely chewed up and it is the beginning of the major process of chewing up these leading panzer divisions so that you know by the third week of july you have the big breakthrough so that's epsom goodwood success or failure you see uh it it depends what you want from it you see i okay so the 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 problem here okay so it is worth just just going through this one yeah because it's 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 not a black and white thing so what happens is it is Dempsey's idea to use these armoured divisions with less infantry is the idea. The infantry is being chewed up. 
Britain is kind of getting short on manpower. Again, that needs qualifying because it's not that they're short of manpower. It means it's they're short of manpower in a way that they maintain the, the fighting system that they're operating. Well, yes, because... Because you could take them because, out of well, factories. Well, because Carlo Deste, there is a chapter where he goes, there were a million spare, yeah, spare yeah, men in the U.S. Yeah, in, which is in, just in, absolute in rubbish, and it has and been it, completely ruined. But there's, I, I will so, send you this article. There's this academic article, article where this guy absolutely trashes the Carlo Deste thesis. Manpower, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... it's Absolutely brilliant. It's such a joy to read. I can't tell you. <laughs> uh, um, but they didn't have the manpower that, yeah. that Carlo Deste accuses them of having. Yeah. So anyway, so the idea is to use armour, very armour-heavy attack. And Dempsey, his command style is always to give an objective which is on the absolute outer reach of what can be possible because yeah. he doesn't want them to kind of achieve that objective and then not be able to exploit. Yeah. So he says, yes, I think we're the, there's a chance we might then get onto the Burgos Bridge and then break through down all the way to Falaise. Eisenhower, who is looking at the map and seeing it's not moving an awful lot, and there's V1s landing on, on London, and under enormous pressure from everyone to kind of get a move on, jumps at this and goes, great, well, what do you need? And so Monty goes, well, what would be quite useful is a bit of air, extra air power just to kind of sort of soften them up a little bit. At the same time, he then downgrades Mont, um, Dempsey's expectations, says, "I listen, I don't expect there to be a breakthrough. Right, let's yeah. just get onto the Borgesworth Ridge and let's, let's kind of do that one. So where Monty's guilty is of not writing Eisenhower and also Tedder's expectations for having given him so much air support. Yeah. But, but he's it, hardly going to do that because they might cancel the air support. Right. Because you've finally got you're using exactly. the strategic bomber force as tactical air rather than as rather than Absolutely. they're not off they're not going off to Essen again to flatten the Krupp's factory. Absolutely. They're being used to they're being used to to obliterate German positions. Yes. And there's the famously tiger tanks flipped on their backs. Yes. By and it's this pretty effective, bombing. to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, and they do get seven and a half miles um, and they do catch the Burgos Ridge, but they don't get any further than that and the breakthrough isn't happening. And Eisenhower and Tedder are absolutely furious. And Eisenhower's mind has been slightly poisoned by Tedder and Cunningham, yeah. who are very anti Monty by this stage because they're desperate to get their air forces onto this uh, this area around the Burgos Bridge because that's where you can build lots of airfields. And they're a bit cramped in the kind of Normandy bridge. But the thing is that these Goodwood in particular, if, if, if people who are so, people who heard of Goodwood, if they've read read about Normandy, you've got Charnwood, uh, which is another Jupiter, Jupiter, and Jupiter Hill One One Two. We 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 mentioned it just now, which is a hideous series of. Um, Attempts to retake Hill One One Two. It's absolutely horrific. Where, where event, eventually the Germans, because um, because as you say, it's still and one of the reasons you need Hill One One Two again. It's like there's this the, south of Caen. There's a second set of geographical features, isn't there? Yeah. Once you're over the the rivers and the Caen Canal, the O'Donnell, you get one. There's a second set of ridges which look all the way down on a very clear day. You can see all the way down to the beachhead. Yeah. And so that the Germans need that because then they can direct the gunnery they've got. Although, you know, you'd think just fire north, lads, that'll probably do the trick. They, 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 they've, they've got that and the Allies are building a supply. So you need to take those hills. If you're the Allies, you need to take those hills so the Germans can stop interfering with the build-up. Yes, and once you and, you and you and once you're at the top there, you can look down over. You can look down and further south, down towards Falaise. You know, you yeah. can look look further further into the German position. So it's an important hill to capture. And the blood spill over. I mean, that's the heart of the Goodwood in a way, because and it's tanks are cool. It's why people are interested in Goodwood. 
complex combined operations with with a horrible infantry meat grinder isn't half as glamorous as you know two afternoons where where the the last ride of the tank regiment and all that sort of stuff is how people have described Goodwood. What happens in Hill One One Two? Series of operations, naval bombardment. Eventually, the Germans just go. Actually, fuck it. We can't hang on to this any no. longer, and our counterattacks are. are, are, are just, there's an orchard, isn't there, at the top of Hill 112 that sort of changes, keeps changing hands. And it's really, I mean, in a way, reminiscent of the reminiscent of the of the tennis court of Kohima, you know. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That very, very close to each other, uh, infantry very close to each other, fighting absolutely bitterly to yeah. the to the end over and over again. Yeah, it's quite Passchendaele-esque, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. horrible. I mean, it is interesting, uh, uh, but when, I mean, you've obviously been up there, but when you do stand on Hill 1 you can, you just, it's one of these reasons why you, everyone should go and walk the ground, because yeah. when you are there, you can completely understand why it's such a strategically important, such a pivotal yeah. place to be. But it's interesting, because Panzermeyer, who we talked about earlier, I mean, you know, he he visits it at the end of the Epsom battle and goes on there, and he just goes, everywhere was destruction. Yeah. You know, there was just burnt out tanks, our tanks, their tanks, dead people, absolutely everywhere I, I've never seen a place more kind of yeah. desolate in my life and that's on the kind of 2nd of July or something you know and, it's, and there's another kind of three weeks to go Yeah. but just to go back just very briefly to go back, back to Goodwood I mean I think one of the interesting things about Goodwood and why it's always seen as a black mark is because you know it launched on the 18th of July 1944 and you know the British lose 400 tanks in one day I mean can you yeah. imagine any yeah. more anything sort of greater ineptitude than that Actually, 493 tanks suffer battle damage on Epsom on the 18th of July. What is really interesting, what no one ever says, is that within 24 hours, 225 of those are back in action. And with a further 48 hours, another 62 or 68 or something are back in action. Yeah. And I think it's only like 120, which are permanently out of action forever on the back of Goodwood. And 125 is nothing like as bad as 400. And of course, it's nothing like as bad as 493. And the reason they're able to do that is because the moment the you know, dusk settles, on come the tank records and, and tank wreckers and, and mobile workshops and all the rest of it. And they kind of whip them all off, pull them off the battlefield and put them back into action. Mm. And because of that kind of versatility of the, of the Sherman tanks and other tanks and simplicity of the way they're constructed comparative to German panzers, they're able to repair them in the field. And mm. that's that long tail, it's that operational level which everyone forgets about because they think it's boring when actually it's really, really interesting. Mm. Now, James, um, I have to ask you about your helmet. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cheers. <laughs> well, I've gone for I've gone for this. James has brought a helmet with him. I've got yeah, big helmet. Um, <laughs> I've brought my um, my GI helmet today, and actually this one's rather nice because it's um it's got a little it's got a a, a white shield on the front painted on with a black rim and a big red one in the middle, which of course is the U.S. First Infantry Division who land on Easy Red. On Omaha Beach on D-Day, um, this is uh, goes into production in in 1941. Up until then, American troops have the Tommy helmet. Yeah, um, the first British troops to arrive in um, in the UK in January 1942, 34th Red Bulls Division. They come with British Tommy helmets, old-fashioned Tommy helmets yeah. from the First World War. So this is a complete change, and. I think they keep this till mid 1980s, something like this. It's the one they have in Vietnam. Who designed it? Uh, well, it's the Quartermaster Corps that are. It's a team of designers, and it's the Quartermaster Corps of the U.S. Army that that um, commission all this stuff. The actual individual designer of it, I'm not lost, sure. Lost, lost to history, or you just don't know. Just don't know. Right. Um, but you it's see, a, there it's, is stuff we don't know. But there is, there is, yeah. But it's very good. It's got this helmet liner. Yes, it's a plastic helmet liner. Yep. 
And it's got kind of a combination of leather and canvas straps on, on the inside of it. And I do remember talking to a guy who... Um, I mean, you know, this is not going to stop a bullet. This is for kind of sort of shrapnel and blast yeah. and all the rest of it. But I do remember talking to a guy who was a U.S. Army Ranger and landed at Jella uh, in southern Sicily in July 1943. And he got he was a ranger and he got hit in the head and suddenly blood was pouring down his face and he collapsed onto the floor and he thought, oh, my God, I'm dying. Um, and then after sort of writhing around for a couple of minutes, realised that he wasn't dying um, and was kept expecting to feel a bit weaker and a bit sort of closer to death but wasn't. So actually then got up, um, still covered in blood because obviously head wounds are very bloody. I took off his helmet. What had happened is a bullet had hit the side of it like this and then had gone... And spun run, round and round. Spun around the liner and had grazed him. And he had this big graze all around one side of his head and that is what had caused the blood. But actually, you know, bandaged him up. He was, he was right as rain. Right as rain. But a, a very iconic helmet, isn't it? You know, whether you have it silhouetted on the, on the back of a rifle that's the soldier's grave yeah. or, or, you know, it just leads it leads you to kind of wanting to have it on with the, with the straps hung undone. One of the reasons you do this, I remember a guy in the Red Bulls in Tunisia talking to him, and he was in a Jeep, and uh, they hit a mine, and the guy in his, um, the guy who had his strap on, had the whole of his front of his face ripped off. Because oh. it just went, it pulled, pulled, just the pulled it up, off. and he didn't, he had it undone, and he was okay. Yes, because there's oh, that, there, there that. was that idea that if you had your helmet done up as well, and, and it would break your neck if they hit your, if they, if you took a shot to the head, right. rather than killing you, it would break your neck because your helmet would, and, and no one wanted that to happen to them. No, I mean I'm not going to lie; it's quite heavy. It's, it feels quite heavy on can the I head. Try it. Yeah, but uh, but I guess it's like all these things you'd you'd quickly get used to it, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Well, it's amazing also, what you can get used to. I mean, yeah. British British generals never wore helmets ever. Mm. Uh, Mark Clark famously would never wear a helmet. Hardly ever wore a helmet. Patton would, though. He had a shiny... Bradley always did, yeah. <laughs> I nearly said that Patton had a shiny helmet, but um, <laughs> he did he used to wear a shiny one, didn't he? I mean, the thing is, the thing is, this is obviously a much, much better design than the, the, the Tommy helmet that, that, that looks like it's from Agincourt. Court. This is, a, that, this is a, be, a, a better all-round prospect, isn't it, for protecting people, surely. Well, except that the wide rim means that when... You know, the whole point is, is when you lie down and, uh, you know... Uh, you're under artillery fire. The Tommy helmet's quite good because it's got that broad rim, protects your neck, stops things going down the back. Mm. Whereas that is not as wide, but it does come closer over, it, it's closer yeah, over I mean, the head. Yeah, it's not the full... I mean, obviously, they would have looked at the, the German coal scuttle and thought, do we do, we do the sort of ear flaps? I mean, it's, that well, it's is, not very different from the Italian one, to no, be honest. No, it's incre It's so iconic. The camouflage netting and everything. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for bringing that in, James. Um, it's that time again, I'm afraid, where we have to say goodbye to our viewers. Our viewers, if you're watching this, you've, you, that's a long, a long, long watch, isn't it? Just watching the, watching the thing on the uh, on the iPhone, going scrolling along the seconds. <laughs> so, um, good luck to those viewers wherever they are, and our listeners too. So it's Alfie Zane to our German listeners, and Adio per ora to our Italian fans. Bye bye. Ciao. <laughs>